I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1, and by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. The English Civil War, Episode 2, Conflict. Departing London in January of 1642, the King effectively handed over control of the capital to Parliament, and with it, control of the largest port and commercial centre in the country. Parliament also gained control of the trained bands and access to the largest arsenal of weapons in the country at the Tower of London. Moving northwards in February 1642, the king and his court meandered their way across the country, seeking supplies, men and weaponry to bolster their cause. In March, Parliament moved to pass the Militia Ordinance, which lawfully saw them take control of the country's trained bands and gave them access to a readily trained and equipped force of approximately 50,000 men. Most importantly, the Ordinance gave Parliament formal control of both the Tower of London and depot or hall. Parliament also gained control of the Royal Navy, which enabled them to utilise trade routes and aid in the movement of men and supplies around the country. On the morning of the 23rd of April 1642, the King approached the city gates of Hull. Charles sought to take ownership of the arsenal held there. However, the town's governor, Sir John Hotham, who had been installed earlier that year by Parliament and was also a veteran of the Thirty Years' War, refused the king entry to the town and barred the city gates. Hull was the second largest magazine in England and boasted 120 cannon, muskets for up to 20,000 men and 7,000 barrels of gunpowder. 
Parliament quickly reinforced Hall by sea in May and June 1642, sending troops under the command of Sir John Meldrum to lead the garrison. Charles retreated to the Sanctuary of York and by July was back at Hull. Hull was a naturally good defensive position and the defences had been reinforced and upgraded during the Bishop's Wars. Hotham ordered the sluice gates to be opened around the town and the banks of the Humber were breached to assist in the strengthening of the town's defences. The Royalists began their siege of Hull on the 10th of July 1642. Charles had under his command 3,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry, and was reinforced by eight cannon, which had been landed 10 miles up the Humber by ship. The guns were transported across land and set up on the eastern side of the town. Meldrum led a force of 500 men out of the besieged town and attacked the Royalists. Meldrum attacked the Royalist cavalry, who fled from the field back towards the town of Beverley, capturing 30 Royalists and killing two in the process. This is widely considered as the first blood of the First English Civil War. On the 27th of July, 1642, Meldrum led another sortie out of Hull. This time, he attacked the Royalists' arsenal at Allenby, capturing 15 cannon and a mortar. Charles grew impatient with the siege, and faced with no real success, chose to lift the siege of Hull on the 27th of July, 1642. He proceeded to the Midlands, seeking to bolster his army. Less than four weeks after lifting the siege at Hull, Charles and his fledgling Royalist army were at Nottingham, hoping to attract support from traditionally Royalist areas such as the Midlands and Wales. The King raised his standard at Nottingham Castle on the 22nd of August 1642, declaring war on the Parliamentarian rebels. This publicity stunt didn't go anywhere near as well as expected and saw Charles muster only 2,500 men by early September. One of the first skirmishes of the war took place outside Kozel, 10 miles east of Birmingham at Curdworth. Royalist forces transporting men and supplies to nearby Tamworth Castle from Kenilworth Castle were headed off by 1,200 parliamentarians at Curdworth Bridge. The Royalists under Sir Richard Willis formed upon the north side of the bridge, with the parliamentarians on boggy ground on the south side. The parliament forces were beaten back, and 20 men who were killed during the action are buried by the south wall of the chancel at Curdworth Church. The church still bears the scar of a musket ball in a window of the nave. Recent archaeology during HS2 construction has located Kozal Manor and the fabulous gatehouse which stood on the eastern bank of the River Cole which was on the approach towards Curdworth Bridge. This gatehouse is still peppered with musket ball marks and are almost certainly evidence of the action which unfolded there in August 1642. Actions similar to this were taking place all over the country at this time, as each side manoeuvred to gain the upper hand. In early September, Parliament boasted an army of 20,000 men, commanded by the Earl of Essex. Essex left the capital on the 3rd of September, and headed for Northampton. Essex and Parliament, much like the King, sought to recruit and consolidate on their power base across the country. The King moved to Shrewsbury via Derby and Stafford with the aim of utilising it as a nerve centre to recruit men from Wales. On the way to Northampton, Essex's ranks were swelled by a detachment of cavalry, 
commanded by Oliver Cromwell. By mid-September, Essex's army numbered some 21,000 infantry and over 4,000 cavalry and dragoons. On the 14th of September, Essex moved his army to Coventry and then onwards to the Cotswolds, seeking to place himself between the King's army and the capital. Essex, learning of the movement of a royalist convoy approaching Worcester, sent a detachment of a thousand cavalry under the command of Colonel John Brown, and he reached Worcester on the 19th of September, 1642. The royalist convoy Essex gained word of was commanded by Lord Byron and had left Oxford on the 10th of September. Byron left Oxford with a large quantity of silver plate donated by Oxford University with the aim of supporting the King's cause. Byron marched his convoy from Oxford onwards to Shrewsbury via Worcester. When Colonel John Brown arrived at Worcester on the 22nd of September, he found it well defended and withdrew to the south and secured a bridge across the River Team at Powick. Brown positioned his men in an attempt to stop Byron from continuing his journey, but failed to learn that the Royalists had reinforced Worcester. These reinforcements numbered 1,000 cavalry and were commanded by the King's nephew, Prince Rupert. Growing restless, Colonel Brown ordered his men to advance onto Worcester across the team around 4pm on the 23rd of September. Working their way up a small lane just north of Powick Bridge, the Royalist Dragoons, many of them who had dismounted and now lined the hedges either side of the lane, ambushed the oncoming Parliamentarians. Such was the surprise and swiftness of the ambush. The Parliamentarians fought a brief rearguard action and retreated to Pershore where they linked up with Essex's advance guard. Nine years later, the final action of the English Civil Wars would be fought in and around the same ground as the action at Powick Bridge. With each army now seeking to gain the advantage before the winter set in, a much too similar story of cat and mouse would play out, a theme common throughout the Civil War, where each side strived to gain the momentum. Charles and his field army left Shrewsbury on the 12th of October, stealing a two-day march on the Parliament forces, and headed towards London, all in an attempt to bring the Earl of Essex's army to battle. Parliamentarian scouts from Banbury discovered the King's army encamped around the village of Edgecote. The Governor of Banbury sent messengers to the Earl of Essex at Warwick Castle to relieve the threat of a royalist attack. Essex ordered an immediate march in an attempt to intercept Charles, and on the morning of the 23rd of October, reached Kyneton, northwest of Banbury. Charles ordered his army to form up on the escarpment of Edge Hill and offer battle to the Parliament forces. The Parliamentarian force numbered a total of 15,000 men, which comprised 12,000 infantry, 2,000 horse, 700 dragoons and 30 cannon. The Royalists mustered similar numbers, which included 11,000 infantry, 3,000 cavalry, 1,000 dragoons and 20 guns. Edgehill was the first pitched battle of the English Civil War and resulted in a stalemate with roughly 500 killed and 1,500 captured on each side. Each side naturally sought to claim Edgehill or Kyneton fight as it was known at the time as a victory when in reality it only compounded the division on each side and ensured the conflict would rumble on until a complete and decisive victory was achieved. Edgehill, however, would not be the last action of 1642. Charles captured Banbury, and Prince Rupert 
charged down the Trent Valley, taking Abingdon, Aylesbury and Maidenhead for the Royalists. Rupert attempted to take Windsor, but met by stiff Parliament resolve, called off the attack. On the 12th of November, Prince Rupert attacked Brentford and sacked the town. This led many nearby townsfolk to side with Parliament, bolstering their ranks. The following day, Essex's army, bolstered by six regiments of the London-trained bands under the command of Philip Skippon, assembled on Chelsea Field. The army numbered 24,000 men and advanced towards Turnham Green to face off the Royalist army, which at 12,000 men dwarfed in size to the Parliamentarian force. Charles, commanding the Royalist army, sought counsel from his advisers, who informed him that attacking an army made up mainly of civilians would not endear him to Londoners. Furthermore, the Royalists were short on ammunition and vastly outnumbered. There was a short exchange of musket shot, which left an estimated 50 men per side wounded. Never again would the Royalists get so close to capturing London. The Royalist army withdrew to winter quarters, setting its headquarters up at Oxford, resupplying and strengthening in anticipation for the campaigning season of 1643. 1643 began with both sides secretly negotiating with the Scots, offering religious concessions in return for military assistance to help bring the conflict to an end. Both sides also held informal peace talks, which all came to nothing, with each camp refusing to budge. Charles permitted troops from the Royal Irish Army to serve in England, and Charles's wife Henrietta Maria returned to England with weapons from the Dutch Republic. Landing at Bridlington in February, Henrietta marched to Oxford with 4,000 cavalry, arriving in mid-July. Rupert left Oxford on the 29th of March 1643 and was given a threefold mission by King Charles. Number one, to punish the town of Birmingham for their disloyalty and insult they displayed for plundering the royal coach. Number two, to garrison Lichfield. Number three, to clear the country as far as possible. Rupert, along with 1,200 cavalry and 600 foot, reached Henley and Arden on Easter Sunday 1643 and proceeded to the unwalled town of Birmingham, arriving the next day, Easter Monday. A skirmish was fought at Camp Hill, in nowadays Birmingham city centre, which ended in a royalist victory. Birmingham was even in the 17th century a manufacturing hub and specialised in the creation of firearms and edged weapons, and sided with the parliamentarian cause. Rupert sought revenge and sacked the town. Leaving Birmingham, it is said that Rupert twice shot the weather vane of St Mary's Church to demonstrate the accuracy of his continental pistols. Rupert reached Lichfield, which had only been captured by Parliament the preceding month, on the 8th of April, and besieged a cathedral. He ordered the parliamentarian commander to surrender, but Colonel John Russell, the parliamentarian commander, sent back the following response. I have heard there is a man who goes by the name of Rupert, who was burnt near four score houses at Birmingham, an act not becoming a gentleman, a Christian or Englishman, much less a prince, and that that man has not in all the king's dominion so much as a thatched house, and if this be the same man, I do not intend to deliver the king's places of strength unto him. Let him pretend what authority he pleases for the having thereof. The Royalists attempted an attack on the 16th of April, but were repulsed. 
The siege continued until Friday the 21st of April, when Rupert again ordered an assault to take place, and this time the Royalists took it with the help of an explosive mine, said to have been one of the earliest used in England, blowing up part of the wall of the cathedral close. On this taking place, the garrison surrendered on terms to Rupert and left the city in the hands of the Royalists. Sir John Gell, who had only captured Lichfield for Parliament in March, and in turn prompted the King to send Rupert to recapture it, advanced on Stafford, seeking to disrupt and harass the Royalist supply lines between Yorkshire and the Midlands. Gell arranged to meet Parliamentarian Commander Sir William Brereton at Hopton Heath. Meanwhile, King Charles had sent a force under the Earl of Northampton to seize control of the West Midlands and Staffordshire. Linking up with Henry Hastings at Tamworth, the Earl of Northampton marched towards Stafford. On the 19th of March, Gal reached Hopton Heath, and the Royalists soon gained word that Parliamentarian forces were nearby and began to advance towards Gal. By 2pm, Brereton reached the Heath. Parliament's force numbered 1,400 men, and the Royalists 1,200. The battle began with the Royalist 29-pound mortar, Roaring Meg, inflicting significant damage to the Parliament forces. The Earl of Northampton led two cavalry charges, and on the second one, he was thrown from his horse into the Parliamentarian line and killed after refusing quarter. Both sides claimed victory, but the truth was that it was a stalemate and indecisive. In June, Prince Rupert shadowed a Parliamentarian baggage train which contained £21,000 in cash. John Hamden, one of the five members, was killed during the clash. The battle at Chalgrove Field saw over 2,000 men engaged and casualties of approximately 100 men total. It was a royalist victory, but the Parliament forces managed to slip away with their baggage train and cash. Oxfordshire was firmly in the control of the royalists. In the West Country, Sir Ralph Hopton secured a royalist victory at Braddock Down and secured Cornwall for the royalist cause. Parliament lost 200 men and 1,200 captured. Hopton marched his army to Wiltshire and inflicted a blow to Parliament by defeating Sir William Waller's numerically superior army at Roundway Down on the 13th of July 1643, thus consolidating the West Country and securing the South West again for the royalists. In the north, the Earl of Newcastle took on the army of Lord Fairfax at Adwalton Moor, just southwest of Leeds, on the 30th of June. Newcastle defeated the Parliament force under Fairfax and advanced on Bradford, which capitulated and in succession, as did Leeds. This left Hull as the only significant parliamentarian garrison in Yorkshire. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Rupert sees Bristol for the Royalists in July, and in turn, gained them a very useful port, as well as the second largest city in England. It also isolated parliamentarian garrisons in the West and would be useful to help land reinforcements from Ireland for the King. One of the less notable actions of 1643 was the Battle of Gainsborough. Fought on the 28th of July, a parliamentarian force under Sir John Meldrum encountered a Royalist force under Charles Cavendish. The preceding night, the Royalists had launched a daring night attack on Gainsborough and seized the town. The Parliament force numbered 1,200 men and soon pushed the Royalists back, driving them from the field. The Parliamentarian Cavalry Commander saw a body of Royalist cavalry drawing up, ready to counter-attack the Parliament infantry. This squadron of Royalist cavalry was charged by the Parliamentarian horse and driven from the field, killing the Royalist Cavalry Commander in the process. That fast thinking and cunning of that Parliamentarian Cavalry Commander no doubt secured the day. It certainly launched his military career, and helped lay the foundations for the new model army. That man was Oliver Cromwell. Between the 10th of August and the 5th of September 1643, Charles besieged the port of Gloucester. Gloucester had only a few weeks before been stormed by Prince Rupert and gained for the Royalist cause, but within days it was back in Parliament's control. Gloucester was important as it sits on the River Severn, and gaining control of it, would allow Charles to ferry men and supplies up to Shrewsbury. It would also prove to be a good link with Bristol and consolidate the Royalist power base in the south-west. The siege at Gloucester lasted nearly a month and resulted in a rare 1643 parliamentarian victory. Gloucester remained in parliamentarian hands. One of the major engagements of 1643 was the First Battle of Newbury. Fought on the 20th of September, it saw the Earl of Essex's army clash with King Charles's force just outside Newbury in Berkshire. Essex's army had been sent to relieve the siege of Gloucester, and it had achieved just that, but it was deep inside Royalist-held territory. Essex had no choice but to attempt to return to London. From there, he would be able to guarantee reinforcements and supplies. The Royalists pursued Essex, and by the 18th of September, Rupert had caught up with Essex's army. Essex's intelligence led him to believe the Royalists were much further away than expected, but in fact, Charles's army was only 14 miles distant. Essex had lost the initiative and increased the pace of his retreat. Rupert was sent with a small force to harass the retreating parliamentarian force, which resulted in Essex's retreat being slowed down and allowed Charles's main field army to close the gap. At dawn on the 20th of September, Essex's army launched a swift and daring assault on the Royalist positions, which resulted in the capture of several pieces of high ground and put the Royalists on the back foot. Essex attacked and was pushed back by the Royalists. The battle pivoted back and forth throughout the day with no decisive breakthrough, and by daybreak the following day, Essex's army slipped away back towards London. Estimated losses for Parliament were 1,200 men and 1,300 for the Royalists. In the North East, the Royalists knew they had to defeat the Parliamentarian forces there and take Hall. With the Earl of Newcastle besieging Hall from the 2nd of September, 
A Royalist force under Sir William Widrington, which numbered 2,500 cavalry, came across Parliamentarian scouts. Following a brief skirmish, these scouts reported back to the Earl of Manchester, who was tasked with relieving the Siege of Hull, that the main Royalist army was now on the move. Manchester maintained the siege of nearby Bolingbroke Castle, denying the Royalists the opportunity to bolster their forces. On the 11th of October, Manchester's force, which numbered 3,000 horse and 2,000 foot, discovered the Royalist force under Widrington at Winterby. The Parliament horse engaged the Royalists, and Cromwell feigned a retreat, luring the Royalists into a trap. Cromwell, who had had his horse shot from underneath him, found a new steed and led a cavalry charge which drove the Royalists from the field. 800 Royalists were taken prisoner and 250 men were killed. Parliament lost only 20 men. The following day, Newcastle's men, run down by the siege, were attacked by the Parliamentarian garrison at Hull. The siege was lifted and control of Lincolnshire, which had been in almost total control of the Royalists, now lay firmly in the hands of Parliament. Bolingbroke Castle, a Royalist stronghold and once home of John of Gaunt, fell to Parliamentarian forces in autumn 1643. Behind the scenes, Parliament had been negotiating with the Scots for nearly a year. The result of this was the Solemn League and Covenant, which was signed between Parliament and the Scots. It was a treaty between both parties, which would seek to protect religious reformation in Scotland and England, and in turn provide Parliament with troops from Scotland in an effort to help win the war against the Royalists. Although 1643 had ended on a sour note for the Royalists, 1644 would begin with Royalist victories at both Nantwich and Cheriton. With Essex and Waller combining forces to hunt for Charles's main field army, they split forces, with Essex journeying for the West Country, leaving Waller to hunt down Charles. Waller and Charles chanced upon each other northeast of Banbury on the 29th of June at Cropperty Bridge. Waller sought to attack Charles's army whilst it was strung out in its line of march, launching two separate attacks across the River Cherwell. In the south at Slapmill Ford, Waller's men were met by the new Earl of Northampton, James Compton, whose father had been killed at Hopton Heath the year prior. Northampton swiftly threw Waller's men back across the Cherwell. In the centre at Cropperty Bridge, Waller's men were beaten back and lost 11 pieces of artillery in the process, and Lieutenant General Wemyss, Master Gunner of England, was captured by the Royalists. After being held as a prisoner for a few months, Wemyss would be swapped in a prisoner exchange, and post-restoration was reinstated as Master Gunner of England by Charles II. Although Cropperty was no decisive victory, it was a tactical one for Charles, and put Parliament once again on the back foot. Charles now took his army southwest and entered the West Country. Only a few days later, however, in the north of the country, Prince Rupert commanded a Royalist force numbering 17,500 men. It collided with the Parliamentarian force under the Earl of Manchester on the 2nd of July 1644 at Marston Moor. Manchester had 24,500 men at his disposal, his ranks swelled by assistance from the Scottish Covenanter army. Reeling from the news of Rupert's defeat at Marston Moor, Charles reached Exeter on the 26th of July and effectively trapped Essex in Cornwall. Charles had 12,000 men at his disposal and 7,000 cavalry. Essex, meanwhile, 6,500 infantry 
and 3,000 cavalry. Marston Moor was one of the biggest battles of the Civil War and was a decisive victory for Parliament. The Royalists lost 4,000 men and 1,500 captured. Parliament, on the other hand, had losses of only 300. This result led the Royalists to abandon the north of England, handing total control over to Parliament and their Scottish Covenanter allies. After splitting his force with Sir William Waller, the Earl of Essex, meanwhile, headed towards Plymouth to help lift the siege there. Royalist commander Sir Richard Granville fell back to Cornwall with Essex in hot pursuit. Essex marched to Loswithiel with the aim of linking up with Warwick's seaborne fleet. Charles ordered Granville to Loswithiel, along with Morris's army and the main Royalist field army. The ensuing battle at Loswithiel was fought in two separate engagements. The Royalists launched their first attack at 7am on the 21st of August and easily bested Essex's men, forcing them off the high ground. The second battle was underway on the morning of the 31st of August, when the Parliamentarian forces sacked and looted the town and began their withdrawal southwards. Observing their movements, the King ordered Granville to attack from the east and Prince Morris and the Mainfield army to cross the River Foy and enter Lostwithiel. With the battle leaning in favour of the Royalists, Essex's army began to flee and were pushed three miles south. As night began to fall, Essex's army was surrounded with no means of escape. Essex and his staff, however, fled on a simple fishing boat, leaving Major General Philip Skippen in charge. Complete victory was ensured for the Royalists when Skippen surrendered the army on generous terms on the 2nd of September 1644. 6,000 Parliamentarian soldiers were captured, with 700 killed in the action. The Royalists lost only 500 men. Those Parliamentarian soldiers captured were marched to Southampton, and as many as 3,000 died of exposure and disease along the way. Those who survived the gruelling march were ultimately given their freedom. The King showed great restraint, acknowledging that those men were still his subjects. Loswithiel was a complete victory for the Royalists and really assured them that they had the upper hand. However, Charles and the Royalists did not capitalise on this major success quickly enough. October brought the Second Battle of Newbury and a hugely outnumbered Royalist army, numbering 8,500 men, faced off against a vastly superior parliamentarian force which totaled 19,000. Charles had marched his army from Loswithiel across the south, all in an attempt to relieve royalist garrisons under siege, such as that at Basing House. Rupert joined forces with Charles, who ordered Rupert to take his force north and draw the Parliamentarian forces to battle. This did not work, but instead weakened Charles's force, and now the Earl of Essex, who had merged three Parliament armies together, waited for Charles at Newbury. With Charles unable to advance on Basing House and relieve the siege, due to the large force ahead of him. He halted his army at Newbury, awaiting Rupert and the Earl of Northampton to join him to bolster his numbers. The Second Battle of Newbury got underway on the 27th of October 1644 and was ultimately indecisive. The numerically superior parliamentarian force had failed to drive home its advantage, although it did mean the Royalists were now unable to advance on London. Owing to just how bad 1643 
and to a lesser degree, 1644, had gone for Parliament, plans were drawn up to introduce a full-time standing army centrally controlled by Parliament. This force would be trained, equipped and wielded with great effect by Parliament. Passed in April 1645, the self-denying ordinance heralded the dawn of the new model army. The ordinance outlined that any members of Parliament had to resign their military command. They could, however, be reinstated if chosen to do so, and all appointments would be made solely on merit. Aristocratic commanders, such as the Earl of Essex and the Earl of Manchester, were removed from command as they were unable to resign their titles. Also affected was Oliver Cromwell. He was a member of Parliament, but also a cavalry commander. He had to resign his command, but the Committee of Both Kingdoms installed him as a Lieutenant General following several 40-day appointments. Command of the Army fell to Sir Thomas Fairfax, Black Tom. January 1645 saw both sides meet to discuss peace at Uxbridge. However, no breakthrough was found and the war would drag on into 1645. The campaigning season got underway and the Royalists lost Shrewsbury, a key supply base and muster point for Welsh recruits. Prince Rupert, in typical fashion, ransacked Leicester on the 31st of May, which led to Parliament lifting their siege of the Royalist capital of Oxford. Both sides met at Naseby on the 14th of June 1645, on what would be the most decisive battle of the English Civil War. Parliament fielded its new model army in its first serious engagement and numbered 6,000 horse and 7,000 foot, as well as 676 dragoons. The army was commanded by Sir Thomas Fairfax. The Royalist force numbered 4,100 horse and 3,300 foot and was commanded by King Charles himself. The battle began in typical fashion and saw the Royalist foot advance towards the parliamentarian lines. Prince Rupert, on the right flank of the Royalist line, advanced headlong towards the parliamentarian left flank, driving their cavalry from the field. Rupert's horse headed for the baggage train and played no further part in the battle. With the Parliament's centre beginning to give way, Cromwell, who commanded the cavalry on the right flank, launched his ironsides forward and smashed into the Royalist cavalry, driving them from the field. Cromwell then swung his cavalry into the left flank of the Royalist infantry, swinging the battle pivotally in favour of Parliament. The Royalist line gave and the day was Parliament. The King's Field Army had been destroyed. Charles sought to consolidate his remaining forces in the coming weeks, but facing impending doom, headed for Scotland, but was rebuffed by stronger parliamentary forces, which forced him to return to Oxford. Charles pinned his hopes on an illusory 10,000 men from Ireland. Basinghouse, Barclay Castle and Winchester, amongst others, all fell to Parliament. Bristol was also lost, which saw Charles dismiss his nephew, Prince Rupert, from his command. Roughton Heath, fought in September 1645, was yet another nail in the coffin for the Royalist cause, and saw Marmaduke Langdale's force humbled by parliamentary forces. Charles is said to have watched the defeat at Roughton Heath from Phoenix Tower at Chester. Royalist strongholds at Chepstow and Carmarthen too capitulated to Parliament, and Charles spent the winter months of 1645 at Oxford besieged by the New Model Army. 
1646 began where 1645 had left off, with more royalist garrisons surrendering to Parliament. Chester fell in February, and Sir Ralph Hopton was decisively defeated by Sir Thomas Fairfax at Torrington on the 16th of February, 1646. With Hopton's defeat, the West Country was now lost to Parliament. Things went from bad to worse, with Sir Jacob Astley's defeat at Stowe-on-the-Wold in March, with his army being scattered to the four winds. With Oxford under siege, the King had almost ran out of options. He donned a disguise and slipped through the siege lines on the 27th of April. For two days, Parliament knew nothing of the King's escape, until on the 6th of May, they received a communique from David Leslie, the Scottish Covenanter commander at Newark, informing them that he had the King in his custody. Newark fell on the same day, and the Scots ventured north to Newcastle, taking the King with them. Oxford fell on the 29th of June, with Princes Rupert and Morris ordered to leave the country. Wallingford Castle surrendered on the 27th of July. The First Civil War had come to an end. Join us next time, where we will discover the Second and Third English Civil Wars, as well as the lasting legacy of the Civil Wars on the United Kingdom. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.